I'm very happy to introduce Patrick Hill in today's Personality Psychology Podcast episode. Patrick is an associate professor at Washington University, St. Louis. And when I started preparing for this podcast interview, I thought, how could I introduce Patrick? So I went to his Google Scholar profile to see what he has been doing. And I realized that there was no single thing I could definitely identify as being Patrick's main topic because he has done so many things. So why don't we just start by you perhaps introducing yourself and saying yourself, what are your key interests in psychology? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I agree. It's not easy to come up <laughs> with an introduction. So a lot of my work focuses on the intersection of personality psychology with health and developmental psychology. So uh, some of the main topics that our lab looks at is how do individuals change their dispositional characteristics over time? How do people shape their development? Um, and how do individual differences predict developmental trajectories of health and well-being? And a good portion of my research focuses on how people find and develop a sense of uh, purpose and direction in their lives. So with that being defined as how do you find that thing that gives you a long-term direction that guides your daily activities or daily goals and keeps you energized and excited. Um, and one reason we focus so much on that is it does seem to be a pretty prominent predictor of health, relationship, well-being, even economic outcomes. So a lot of my research is kind of dedicated towards understanding why and for whom a sense of purpose seems to be really valuable. But all of that taken in the context of this kind of lifespan developmental perspective with studies going from adolescence into older adulthood overall. Mm -hmm. I think I asked this question from all of the researchers I have been interviewing what have been the key achievements of personality research over the last decades? What are the things that we should be most proud about if we talk about personality research to the public or to anyone, really? That's a good question. I, I think, for me, there's kind of three things that jump out as when I'm talking about personality and what I do to, <laughs> to people in the public, uh, the things that I tend to focus upon uh, first, uh, and perhaps foremost, is the fact that personality traits, personality dispositions seem to be such robust predictors of health outcomes, well-being outcomes, developmental outcomes, and really providing us some insight into how important it is to do a lot of the research that we're all doing of trying to understand the, the mechanics of personality, how best to assess personality. All of this is kind of motivated by these big-term effects and these uh, long-term predictive, uh, the long-term predictive value of personality for number of major life events and outcomes. The second thing that I think is really important to get across is that the research across multiple decades now has shown we're not uh, stuck with our personalities. That we we do change over time and have the capacity to change our personalities throughout the lifespan. And I do a lot of research with older adults, and this is something that I think can be kind of positive or heartening to them of this idea that, you know, if we're showing all these effects where personality predicts X, Y, and Z, 
the important thing is that uh, you have the capacity to shape your personality and perhaps find something, uh, find a personality profile that may lead to more adaptive outcomes for you. So in some ways, those first two points kind of go in tandem for me of if we're going to show that personality is such a robust predictor, reminding people that they are not stuck or they're not left with their personality that they had as a child um, throughout the lifespan is pretty important uh, to to help people uh, see the importance of personality psychology. And the final thing that I really get excited by when teaching uh, personality psychology is that it allows us to understand individual people while still making these comparisons across individuals. So I I don't know the best way of putting this, um, but the fact that we are a very unique discipline in terms of recognizing the importance of the person as a unit in groups or bigger between-person differences, I think that's a really valuable take-home message from personality psychology that we can say these things about broader personality dispositions and make these between-person comparisons while still recognizing that each one of us is an individual. And that really speaks to personality psychology as the study of a person. And there's obviously a lot of great work going on right now in in kind of rebuilding and re-energizing that idiosyncratic nature of personality science and personality psychology. So it's kind of a broader thing, but just something that I know when I teach personality psych and when I get people interested, students interested in joining the lab, that ability to speak at both levels of the person and the broader picture, uh, I think is a really valuable tool in our toolbox as personality psychologists. Yeah, this brings to mind what Bill Ravel has said, that personality science is the last refuge of the generalist in psychology. <laughs> so I, I, I really feel the same, that the one way we, we can identify our field among other fields of psychology is that we're the sort of bigger picture field. Yeah, uh, yeah so you, you feel the same. You mentioned the idiosyncratic personality psychology. We we have an episode, well, actually, it's been mentioned in two episodes before. Aidan Wright was talking about this, and Emery Beck was also talking mm-hmm. about this in, in, in some of our earlier episodes. But I have to say, to me, it seems like it's been, for the last quite a few decades now, it's been a relatively niche topic mm-hmm. among personality researchers. Do you think it's coming back now? And Perhaps maybe you could even start by by defining uh, for our listeners what do you mean by idiosyncratic oh, personality science. So I think the extent to which it's kind of a niche field uh, does depend on that definition. <laughs> so how you're thinking of, you know, the way that we often do this kind of work in our lab is more focused on if you are developing a purpose in life, each of us might have a slightly different way of describing that purpose and that direction. So when you consider it from that perspective, there is this idiosyncratic nature to purpose research in which it takes some qualitative work, it takes some more in-depth work to understand what is the personally meaningful things that energize any individual person. Whereas we also are doing a lot of work at kind of this between-person level of All of us can probably respond to items about like, how much do you feel a sense of purpose or direction in your life? So that allows some flavor of both the way we do the more idiosyncratic individual level work 
is speaking to that person's specific personal goals, what's personally meaningful to them, while at the same time allowing for these between-person differences showing um, in large-scale studies, people who score higher on sense of purpose tend to experience better well-being and developmental outcomes down the road. So that's one area that we tend to do. Um, I know uh, speakers you mentioned do more work focused on how personality structure may change from individual to individual, how these things are linked over time within the individual. And there's a lot of interesting directions on that front that are a little bit more removed from some of the stuff that we've been doing in our lab. But I think you're right that it's always been something that's kind of a subset of personality science. And partly because if you're doing that kind of work, it takes so much effort, so, so much measurement, so much description that it can be really overwhelming. And, and I applaud the people doing, uh, doing these more large scale comprehensive studies because we're doing, uh, as I said, a very small subset of that. But in the way that we've been doing this idiosyncratic work, perhaps that's one way of showing that it's it's got a bigger connection to the field. Um, so when you look at models of personality, like uh, the McAdams and Powell's levels of personality, this idea of the life narrative is something where we're, we're doing that kind of work of talking to people about their individual lives, their individual purposes. And, and that does allow us to have that flavor of the person in connection to these kinds of between-person measures that we, we typically use in the studies. So. I guess we have to be honest that most of the big achievements that personality researchers have, have seen over the last decades have been done in the non-idiosyncratic research tradition. <laughs> so they, you mentioned the prediction of, of different life outcomes, for example. But obviously, it is a real possibility that there is a limit to how far this sort of research can go in actually explaining people or, or providing yes. results that speak about actual individuals in their own specific life circumstances. Where do you think how far we can go with the traditional, let's call it nomothetic research, where we assume that qualitatively people are very similar and they only vary in terms of quantities, as opposed to uh, the idiosyncratic research where we assume that people actually are qualitatively different. So how far can we go using the tradition, our current main tradition, the nomothetic tradition? I, I think it's a great question, that it's something that, as you said, the nomothetic tradition has been where we get a lot of the things that I, <laughs> I pointed to as the key achievements of personality trait research. While simultaneously, at some point, we have to recognize that what these traits are is not the same for each individual. And I, I think you're right that we're, we're reaching the point where we need to bridge the two disciplines quite a bit to really continue moving forward. Recognizing that, uh, for instance, these very broad disposition, like coming up with taxonomies that focus on five, six general traits for everybody is probably not going to give us the same individual level explanatory value as starting to move either lower in the hierarchy to find more specific traits or trying to pair this nomothetic work with potentially using idiosyncratic, ideographic work that you could imagine a certain nomothetic profile might lead to you know, following up at the ideographic level to understand, like, it looks like you might be at risk uh, for some health concerns at this level, 
let's see what that plays into at the ideographic level, particularly when trying to think through how changes in personality could help an individual uh, with their health and well-being. So much of that change research has to be more individual focused. So much of it has to be, you know, are you wanting to change these characteristics about yourself? And I know in, in some of our work and some of my colleagues' work, it can be difficult to get people to buy into those interventions or programs when describing things at such a broad level. Like how many people in the wor world know what conscientiousness means? <laughs> like we have to describe that consistently and, and bring it down to levels that might be more like how, how this plays out in your life or how this plays out in, in daily life. I, I think that's a huge part of going forward with these interventions that targeting the big broad nomothetic traits may not be the best way of going um, in some regards. I'm not sure that answered your question, but that was my best guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I put you in a spot in a way because it, it, it was always going to be a hard question to answer. But I think your answer actually speaks to something that we are also seeing in our research lately is that we are currently doing a, a bigger population-based study where we are also giving people feedback on their big five personality scores so they can get let's say they can be high in openness and medium score in openness and low score in openness and we are getting a lot of this feedback that people don't recognize themselves from the feedback because when we define these traits we give a range of more specific traits actually saying okay if you're high in openness you're probably doing this and that and the third and fourth and fifth thing but it's statistically going to be guaranteed that only some of them apply to any one individual, even if right. they are high in openness. And right. so it, it's always going to be the case that they only partly recognize themselves in the feedback and partly they won't. And that seems to be a, a bit of a problem with these high-level right. general feedbacks. For people I think it's taking. a great point. And when we've been doing similar things, providing feedback at more specific or facet level, like it seems to lead to a bit more by like, oh, I can see myself in this aspect of agreeableness, but I want to think of myself as an agreeable person overall, for instance. I, I think you're right that the, like that's still a very between person, nomothetic way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. But the big, the bigger traits, we, we have a lot of difficulties, like <laughs> like you've outlined there. So but yeah, of course, so good. there will be always trade-offs because that will make things so much more complicated and more, yes. <laughs> as you already said. So what do you think have been the most puzzling findings that researchers have been faced with so far in personality research? I mean, surely there are some findings like uh, personality traits predicting life outcomes that are not necessarily very puzzling because personality is defined as a summary of what people do. And life outcomes also are reflections of what people have done over a, over a period of time. So in a way, in a, in a sense, these associations are a sort of validation of personality, but not right. very surprising. But surely there must be findings that are also very surprising and nobody could have guessed that things would turn out that way. Are there mm -hmm. any that come to your mind? Some of the things that might be more surprising are when we start to get at the extremes in either direction of, you know, talking through these traits that we keep trying to say, like being higher in conscientiousness is a good thing up to a point or up to a, uh, an area where it might start becoming uh, maladaptive or problematic. That some of those, when discussing personality science uh, in my classes, that, that seems to be something that people often have difficulty and find a bit puzzling at times of any one of these traits, like every personality psychology professor says, like, 
it's not that these traits are always good for you in a, in one way or the other. So I think that becomes where the puzzling aspects of it are. Like for instance, the times where we might see, you know, some of the work showing that individuals who are high on conscientiousness might fare worse after uh, being laid off from work or these cases where, you know, it's kind of the problematic side of these traits. And in that instance, the research findings suggesting, like if you built this career because of being a very conscientious individual, it could lead to a greater disruption when those careers fall or you, or you lose that sense of structure. And in our own work, we, we see this at times with individuals who might be too focused on their direction for life, like too, too goal-directed, too focused on a single pathway for them, a single purpose. And you can, like we've coined this kind of term of derailment where individuals might lose that direction for their lives. And derailment leads to these really problematic outcomes, which perhaps that in itself is not surprising, but thinking through how being a very purposeful person may down the road potentially lead you to a greater risk for derailment or a greater risk for losing your direction, particularly for people who try to craft a purpose that is very obtainable or specific. That's something that we try to encourage against. Like if you're purpose in life was to be a professor at this point, it's like, okay, what do I do now? Or um, if your purpose in life was to be a doctor and you have difficulties in medical school, that could derail you substantially. So that is one area where we've been trying to promote the idea that, again, none of these traits, none of these characteristics are always going to be adaptive that higher levels aren't always better. And I think that's something that at least in my teaching seems to be a difficult concept to grasp at times for students to recognize that it's not always better to be higher on this specific characteristic that seems, as you noted, to predict all these positive things down the road. Why wouldn't I always want to try to be more and more and more conscientious? That's at least one thing that comes to mind immediately. Well, that's very interesting. I don't think we talk about this nowhere near as much as we could. But you know, in a way, this is obviously makes sense because I think it's with many things in life. If you are very invested in one specific thing, which basically is scoring very high in purposefulness or, or something, some other trait really is, then it's risky, right? Right. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think, do we have yet the measures for traits that are sensitive enough to uh, describe individual differences at these extremes. So basically what you're alluding to is that currently we're fitting these linear models in our data where we're we're fitting a straight line between the scatter plot that has consensuousness on one or purpose of life on one axis and then some outcome on the other axis and we're assuming that it's just things going upwards endlessly. But you're alluding here that it's not going to be the case. There will be a leveling off or even a, a reversal. I, I, I'm not sure we have the measures yet to, to measure these extremes. No, I think you're exactly right that we don't have a good grasp of kind of the extreme range, um, particularly with some of the traditional big five inventories are not capturing those kinds of maladaptive behaviors associated with high conscientiousness or extreme extroversion or something of that nature. And, and this is where a lot of our Current work has also been uh, bridging with some of the clinical science professors here in the department. And, you know, they've provided uh, some great insights into the kind of the disordered end of these personality spectrum 
But again, we, we tend to have either measures that are in this general range or in the personality disorder range. And, and you're alluding to a really important point of not having any measures that kind of provide that full spectrum that you would really want for understanding at what point is there like a curve <laughs> in the relationship or at what point do we start to see uh, diminishing marginal returns of being conscientious? So Yeah, it, it will be really interesting to see how this plays out. I think in, in that sense, intelligence research might be a little more advanced, mm-hmm. uh, maybe for practical reasons, because intelligence testing tends to be, it's, it's older historically, and it tends to be a little more robust than personality testing, I suppose. And they also have thought there that it could easily be the case that high intelligence, as good as it is, uh, up to a certain point, might start being detrimental for mm-hmm. mental health, for example. And it has been thought for a long time, but I, I have to say that the empirical findings so far haven't been very supportive of this idea. And it, it seems to be that it always, you know, getting a little little few more extra IQ points is going to buy you a bit more of these good outcomes. But but it could easily be uh, very different for, for personality research. Yeah, we just don't have the data. Uh, as you said, it's always a data and measurement issue in a, in a lot of these cases. And... Yeah, well, there, is a, there is a lot of work to do, and that's actually a very exciting uh, direction that, and very tractable direction that people could take in their research because it's actually doable, probably. It's right. just, yeah. just a matter of diligent work and, and creating these measures that are sensitive enough at these extremes. But theoretically, it's not... It's theoretically, not, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which makes it... Because a lot of problems in our science are theoretically murky and, and quite intractable, but this one doesn't seem to be. Mm-hmm. So for these, you have done quite a lot of work and, and you mentioned uh, these associations between personality traits, either at the big five level or, or some more specific traits like purpose in life and various life outcomes. Do you think these associations, as they have been measured now, using our current tools and using linear models, are they strong enough to matter for individuals and or societies at, at a larger level? Should we really pay attention? That's a good question. I think um, on one front, uh, there seems to be some good evidence of this from some of the economic studies or some of the public health studies, like one prominent uh, economic study of healthcare and broader federal costs in in a Dutch sample demonstrates like high neuroticism tends to be related to worse economic outcomes for the country as a whole. And, And you can see that playing out in a lot of ways in terms of both the difficulties with like healthcare utilization, perhaps Uh, neurosis leading to worse health outcomes, which leads to more healthcare utilization. But you also see this playing more manifestly in things like missing work, productivity, and perhaps downstream effects on family, friends who need to assist when you are in poorer health. So I think in those respects, that literature has shown pretty clear evidence of what they would call enormous uh, costs as associated with neuroticism at kind of the public health or broader societal levels. That work, I think, provides our best evidence. What we've been working on right now, uh, some of the uh, research I've been doing with uh, Emily Woolroth at Northwestern and, and others is looking at, can we actually demonstrate changes in these traits, predict health outcomes above and beyond initial levels? So if we're trying to claim that we are that these associations matter to the point of potentially 
intervening to the point of potentially creating programs. There needs to be a greater recognition or greater opportunity to see find research findings that show becoming more purposeful can improve your levels of health in the long run above and beyond initial levels. So I think that's some of the evidence that I would like to see going forward. And it leads to a lot of analytic caveats of trying to figure out how to approximate and estimate unique change effects above and beyond level effects. And there's, of course, a lot of scholars working on, on that front to try to figure out how best to model these independent influences. But we also need more rigorous and uh, um, more frequent assessments of these traits and these outcomes to try to see, you know, just looking at changes in personality over a nine-year span of time, like we've done in, say, the midlife in the United States minus sample, that doesn't really give us that kind of fine-grained opportunity to say much about what are the broader public health impacts of somebody becoming higher uh, personality trait, and particularly what that means for the individual themselves. So I think the answer to your question is thus far, it looks pretty promising in terms of these associations are mattering. And if there's a great meta-analysis from uh, Brent Roberts and colleagues from about two decades ago, showing that the effects of personality traits on mortality risk seem to be as great or greater than a lot of the predictors that first come to mind, like socioeconomic status, education level. So when we compare it to benchmarks like that, which the field and beyond the field readily recognizes important factors for uh, intervening upon, giving people more education um, and so forth, I think those kinds of studies provide us good insight into the value of personality for these broader outcomes but for me, I also want to start seeing more evidence of change effects above and beyond levels in order to really start recommending, like we should be doing more intervention or we should be doing more programs to help people change over time. Um, that, that's kind of the next wave of our research. Still, these relationships or the way to interpret their mattering, let's put it that way, happens at the level of the population. So, and that clearly seems to be an effect. So let's say, hypothetically, we manage to nudge people's uh, consensusness level up a little bit, uh, just a little bit. And in the population, when we aggregate these little effects across a million people, we will see a lot of money saved and yep. a lot of suffering maybe reduced. That's entirely possible. But on the other hand, we also have to think about these effects and talk about these effects, I guess, honestly, at the level of single individuals. Are these effects strong enough that a single individual, if their own conscientiousness somehow increased a little bit, would see this as a positive change in a way that matters for their individual lives? And because if you talk to people in the public, for example, they ask about why do you do this research? And we say we do this because it matters for the, for the public and, and we give this evidence and then they still want to see how this matters for them rather than right. for the society as a whole. And, and then you have to somehow, somehow explain that to them as well, maybe. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge, uh, like, especially when we consider like the classic and more contemporary theories of personality trait development. Um, there's this notion that there is some kind of a potential feedback loop in which when you score higher on this trait, you're motivated by societal pressures or personal understanding of the benefits of that trait to keep progressing. Like, oh, that I, I now see that being more conscientious leads to these benefits, so I should continue being conscientious. 
that kind of feedback loop, unfortunately, has not been tested well thus far in terms of recognizing the benefits of it at the individual level. And maybe something that when we're, you know, some of the discussions around uh, personalized interventions, uh, these kinds of app-based technologies that we now have, I think that's a place where perhaps we can start alerting people to you know, you gained uh, this level of conscientiousness and here's what your daily life looked like when you were higher on conscientiousness rather than before. I totally agree that both things that should be key directions for us going forward of trying to recognize that the in, at the individual level, people might not see these benefits and either alerting them to the benefits or doing more work at kind of that change level to show whether or not it's impacting the individual is important and and necessary for both developing our program, uh, our intervention programs, and in in several ways, uh, validating some of the traditional theories around why personality traits are changing over time um, that we, we have not really studied that feedback loop very well up to this point. That's a very interesting idea to give people this sort of individual feedback and, and hoping that this will sort of motivate them to go further in the trajectory of interventions. One of the maybe not so desirable outcomes of this be that the magnitude of individual differences could increase in the sense that those who already have these desirable traits, they just keep getting better in these traits and right. those who don't have them from this from the start, they they still not have them. It's the Matthew effect, basically. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say the Matthew effect that we know well from cognitive aging and cognitive intervention work of individuals getting more out of the intervention when they were already higher on education or cognitive ability to start with. And I think that is a concern for us going forward. And I am excited by some of these recent work, uh, like by Matthias Alemann's lab and others trying to see who wants these kinds of interventions. So I think that's a huge part of these app-based personality interventions, uh, that they're asking the right questions around what traits do you want to change on? Do you want to change on traits? And trying to figure out who has the motivation to do so is a, an important starting point for trying to see, is it just going to be a bunch of Matthew effects, like you're saying, or are there opportunities to intervene for those who may initially not be that motivated to, to gain on the trade? Yeah, I think Matthias Alemond and uh, and some other people have done some very exciting studies recently showing how people, if they really want to change mm -hmm. in certain personality traits and do work in the name of that change, they can change I don't think we know yet how lasting these effects will be over the longer time spans. What, what is your guess? How lasting they will be? I don't know. Uh, with those specific programs, I think that's a very important open question for us going forward. I, I was part of a meta-analysis with Brett Roberts a few years ago that kind of targeted what levels of change do we see in personality across multiple types of interventions? So rather than focusing on interventions like uh, Matthias Alemann's, how do you, how much do you want to change on your personality? Looking at, uh, we looked at a lot of different interventions like cognitive interventions, pharmacological interventions, therapeutic interventions. And in a lot of those studies, you do see some fairly lasting, like over several months at least. Um, of course, we're limited by how long of a follow-up the studies themselves had. 
but uh, particularly when you consider things like uh, psychotherapy and some pharmacological interventions, you can find lasting changes on traits such as uh, neuroticism, of course, being the main target. So I think that there is an opportunity, at least based on that meta-analytic work, for these to hold more lasting impacts. But it is tricky to directly apply the research findings from interventions that weren't directly targeting personality to interventions that are more directly targeting how motivated you are to change on personality. One difficulty that you always have with any kind of app-based intervention like this is getting people to continue with it over time. So, of course, in, in their findings, as in most studies, I know Alamon's group has difficulty keeping people engaged with the app over weeks and months um, down the road. So being able to understand the attrition rates, being able to understand how to keep people engaged, and perhaps trying to find opportunities for boosters of this training later, I think that's going to be something that it's going to be difficult with any of these kinds of interventions to get people to come back to it in a few months if perhaps they're starting to fall fall back into their less conscientious ways. Yeah, the concept of boosters is now getting gaining yes. some traction in the general population, so it might be uh, easier in the future right. to, use, to use that term for personality interventions as well. I was just thinking about there's one maybe technical aspect to these interventions, but I don't know if people have considered this, but could, could a well-known statistical phenomenon of regression to the mean be also part of these, that people who are really off from the sort of typical level in the population in a trade are those people normally who want to change, mm -hmm. and a change would happen in them anyway, because things generally, as we measure them second time and third time and fourth time, they tend to, not, tend to shift towards the population mean. Could that be part of the thing? I think that's definitely a possibility and something I know has been brought up in some of the work on like gratitude interventions of if you keep assessing people on how grateful are you for the people around you and how thankful are you for your, like, eventually you might gain naturally as a part of uh, responding to those items multiple times and, and trying to disentangle the, the natural regression to the mean for the less grateful individuals to uh, start with are probably those who are going to show gains naturally um, and disentangling that at the kind of intercept to slope associations for these analytic models is something that I don't know how well that's been investigated in some of these intervention studies, but I know it, it frequently comes up in, in things like gratitude and other positive psychology type interventions of those questions are going to naturally lead you to maybe think about it more and more and just a response bias over time is going to play a role in things. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this meta-analysis before you did with Brent Roberts and the effectiveness of interventions for personality change. And when I read this meta-analysis and when I teach about this meta-analysis to my students, one of the things that keeps getting my attention is how similar the very different kinds of interventions were in their effectiveness. So in many ways, it seems that it almost doesn't really matter what specifically is being done with people. It, it seems to help. In, the, in these settings. Do you think whether in the future, if, if these interventions develop and get more refined, 
we will break through this pattern in the sense that there will end up being interventions that clearly are more effective than others. Or will it always be such a story that almost any intervention will be just as good as any other? I think that's a very important point going forward in terms of, if you think about the types of interventions that are in that meta-analysis, therapy, cognitive training, pharmacological exercise, like a lot of those different interventions are improving the individual in some way. And then perhaps, as you note, it leads to potential improvements on personality because it's like anything is something good in some regard. I think down the road, that's something that we really need to focus on. And we're starting to see this a bit in some efforts to develop like gratitude interventions that differ from forgiveness interventions that differ from purpose interventions. Um, some of our research has been trying to see um, I, my colleague at uh, Cornell, for instance, looks at how purpose in life interventions may differ from more common uh, self-reflection interventions or self-esteem interventions. So I think there's some opportunities there, uh, self-validation interventions. I, I hope there's a possibility for us to disentangle these different interventions over time, but we're so early in the process right now that it's difficult to really know without a more rigorous clinical trial or a more rigorous trial that compares what happens when one group gets the cognitive intervention versus one group that gets pharmacological intervention. I think the best evidence I have for that uh, right now probably comes from work that I did with uh, Josh Jackson here at Washington University uh, that Josh wrote a paper about a decade ago looking at the impact of different types of cognitive training on openness to experience and find that there were only some cognitive programs that increased openness, whereas other types of training did not um, in terms of focusing on certain cognitive facets, certain cognitive domains versus others. So there's at least some evidence that perhaps it's not just cognitive training writ large that has an impact on openness, but specific types of cognitive training. I, I know some of those findings have received mixed evidence in more recent work, but I think that's one possible way of looking at this is taking different ways of the same type of intervention, like different types of cognitive training and seeing, do these show unique associations with personality traits? And at least in uh, Josh's paper from a while ago now, there was some evidence of that. So. Yeah, these would be very important findings because they would give us some indications as to the mechanisms of these changes. Right. What are the active ingredients? What is, what is driving the change? When I talk about these interventions to people, uh, sometimes I get this reaction that, okay, is it really personality per se that is changing or is it just something specific about the person, like the habits? I guess some people like those who uh, cite five-factor theory would use the term characteristic adaptations or calling the young would use also the same term in the framework of the cybernetic personality theory. Are these changes in personality per se or in characteristic adaptations? That's a good question. We need better measures to, to understand this in some respects. But uh, the way that I often teach about these changes is considering them in terms of models of change that build from these kinds of state levels up to habitual levels up to trade levels. And I think that kind of a theoretical perspective gives me some hope that these uh, like state levels over time are leading to habitual change. If I can get somebody 
to keep organizing their desk over time. It might lead to a habit, which might lead ultimately to the personality trait changing on the whole. And like related to these models, whether it's like the sociogenomic model of personality, um, Alamond and Flukiger have a model that kind of speaks to these multi-levels of personality change. One thing to consider is back to your original question, which level really matters for the person of I think that's a very good point going forward and, and something that uh, my colleagues and Bill um, here and I have been discussing a lot is, yes, it's, a, it's an interesting question for us as personality scientists, whether it's leading to trait level changes, if it's leading, because um, I teach health psychology here, thinking of like a lot of health psychology is focused on motivational change and changes of exercise goals or eating better. Those kinds of lower tier in the hierarchy changes certainly are having positive benefits for the person's health and well-being. So I think on one level, uh, your question it is well taken in terms of trying to provide better tests of these theoretical frameworks that changing the states will ultimately lead to effects on the trait level. But also, it's important for us to recognize that if our intent is to change somebody's health and well-being, trait change may not be the focal target of some of these interventions or the best focal target of some of these interventions. And something for us to be considering where there's pros and cons both ways of trying to move higher up the ladder versus targeting something more proximal or specific. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And I think this reminds me of something that Chris sort of said in a few podcasts back that it might actually make the interventions more palatable if the interventions turn out to be in specific habits people have or specific skills people have to deal with their life challenges rather than in their personality per se, because a lot of people might say, hey, keep your hands away from my personality. That's yeah. my thing, but it's fine to learn new habits and, and practice new skills, but not to change my personality. Yeah. That was the reaction I also got from my daughter when I had a discussion with her and she was very hesitant to, uh, <laughs> uh, to talk about changing her personality. I think, I think you're exactly right. That there, we've had these discussions in my classes before about the, you know, the moral and ethical implications of changing personality. And, and it does lead to these difficulties. And like the counterpoint you could make is if you're changing the broader trait level, presumably changing conscientiousness is going to lead to lots of different uh, effects on your health, your wealth, your well-being, and so forth. But to try to build somebody's interest in the uh, intervention, we have to go back to exactly what we are saying earlier of trying to explain. First, you have to explain the findings of how it leads to multiple domains of life, and then explain what conscientiousness is. <laughs> and and it's a lot easier to instead say like, well, let's try to help you uh, be organized at work, or let's try to help you change your health and well-being goals. That those those motives, as you note, may be far more palatable than all the extra work you have to do to convince someone of the the bigger level change. Yes, yeah, sure. Also, of course, there is probably is a possibility to study whether the changes are more in the personality in the broader sense or just in specific habits. If we do, for example, an intervention and we see that the change generalizes across yeah. a whole range of different habits, then probably we, we have a broader change in personality. If the interventions don't generalize that well, then mm -hmm. they don't change personality perhaps per se, but something specific about the person. I think this question has been very well studied in intelligence research again. 
mm-hmm. where there has been a lot of enthusiasm in, in cognitive trainings, for example, in working memory trainings. And then they explored whether these interventions, yeah. effective as they are for memory training, do they generalize to other domains of cognition? And generally, they don't that well. Right. There's not much evidence of the far transfer effect. In, in a lot of this cognitive training. And similarly, you might expect that to plan out in a lot of these personality interventions or as well that we would find near near transfer, like maybe at best near transfer to similar kinds of motives, but not bigger picture trait level changes. So yeah, but perhaps it doesn't matter if there is an perhaps. intervention and has a specific effect and a specific outcome that people care about. And maybe even if it does need a booster in the sense that it, the effects are not that long lasting, it's going to be fine if it still works and improves people's qualities of life in a perceptible way. Right. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that should be the goal, hopefully, rather you know, that if we're focusing on that, particularly in some of the work we've been doing on the sense of purpose front, like getting people to be more purposeful at the daily level seems to improve their daily affect. So that's more important to us than trying to uh, maybe have these bigger, like what is the big trait level change? Focusing on the individual and focusing on the individual's well-being should be kind of the target for for a lot of this work. Thank you. I think this is a very good note to end with this podcast. Thanks so much for uh, coming to the podcast and talking about your own research and personality research more broadly and its implication for the society. Patrick. Yes. Thank thank you you so much for inviting me. (laughs) This has been great.